I think that individuation should be in service to community. It should lead to one's living within the larger. It's about me bringing my individuality, not my individualism, but the uniqueness of myself into the community. And in some ways, the community helps me individuate. Welcome to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I speak to pastor, theologian, and union analyst in training, Kenneth Kovacs. This conversation takes as a starting point the lifelong correspondence between C.G. Jung and Swiss theologian Adolf Keller. Kenneth helps us outline this fascinating correspondence, its importance for bridge building between the fields of psychology and theology, and it opens up for a conversation about the relationship between individuation and community, the dialectical theology of Karl Barthes, the dark side of the numinous, Wolfgang Gigerich's critique of Jung, and the possible dangers of imitating Christ. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. My mother taught Sunday school for 40 years. I was in church every Sunday morning, very active in my home congregation in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York City. I grew up with very strong religious sensibilities. I had a strong sense of uh, the holy or the divine, the mysterious, the numinous. Things struck me at a very, very early age. I had a number of what I would call religious experiences or numinous experiences when I was uh, very young, but of course couldn't quite discern the meaning of them or put them within a particular context. Today I am a pastor and that's where I spend most of my, my time and energy within the, within the, the church. The folks in my, in my home, home church often said, you're going to be a minister one day. When you grow up, you're going to be a minister one day. And I always said in response, never, never, I would never be a minister. Primarily because as I thought about it when as a, as a teenager, I could never figure out how a minister came up with so many words week after week for sermons. For me, that was the big obstacle. And so I figured if I was going to be a minister, I need to figure out how to write a sermon. And so when I was a teenager, I decided that I would, I would write a sermon a day. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what, how to write a sermon, but I have a notebook, which I still have, which I, which I tried to write down a sermon a day. And then after three days, I gave up because I had no, no, no ideas. I had no, no, no words. So that, that was a real obstacle. A, a real change came when I went to university. I went to Rutgers University in, in New Jersey. And like most university students, you know, they try to find, at least here, the figure out what their easy A class might be. What would be the easiest class to, to take? Where, what would be the gut class, as we, we call it here, where you can get just e easy grades and not have to put a lot of effort and energy in, into it. And so I decided that, you know, I grew up in the church. I knew a lot about the Bible. I would take an Old Testament class. Now, Rutgers University is a secular university, but has a very fine religion department. So I took an Old Testament class and I figured that would be an easy A, but that class gutted me in, in the sense that it threw me into a deep existential crisis because I was reading the Bible for the first time intellectually, critically, scholarly, really just completely opened up my world. And I went into a deep kind of existential, even faith crisis during, during that, uh, that time. But in the end, I got an A in the class <laughs> and then I decided to take New Testament the next semester. So that started a larger process of, of exploring my faith from a more intellectual academic perspective of critically thinking about my faith, delving deeply into questions re regarding my, my faith and my experience. I had professors who were incredibly gifted, critically, you know, critical thinkers, scholars, who I didn't know it at the time, also had a strong commitment to Christianity. And so they taught me about the value of a thinking faith, 
of critical faith. So I was really grateful for that experience. But yeah, I definitely grew up within the life of the church. And uh, I think my faith was actually deepened during some of my time in, in university. It was in that context that I also felt a call to being a pastor. And, and when did uh, Carl Gustav Jung enter the picture? C.J. Jung entered the picture very early when I was a university student at, at Rutgers. I took a class with the title uh, Religion and Psychology. I had no idea that psychology had anything to do with religion. And I also grew up with the understanding that, or the, or the perception that psychology mediated by Freud was anti-religion, anti-Christianity, anti-faith. And so I was shocked and even stunned that religion had something to do with psychology. And in that class, which was really a pivotal class for me in my development, in that class, we read Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So that was my first exposure to someone like Jung with his background. Here's a psychiatrist, a child of the parsonage, a child of the manse, who valued the place of religion, valued faith, tradition, the life of the church, critically to be sure with his, from his own uh, experience. But here was someone who was open to the numinous, to the spiritual, to religious experience. It was around that time, I also started reading theology for the very first time. And to be honest, I really didn't know what theology was as, a, as an academic discipline. So again, here I was in a very secular public university taking an advanced class on theology. And so I was reading Schleiermacher and Barth and Paul Tillich and reading these individuals and first Karl Barth and then Paul Tillich just opened up my mind, opened up my thinking, opened up my heart. And I really had to come to grips with what I, you know, personal, personally believe, not my parents' convictions, not the convictions of my church or my tradition or of others. And it was around this time that I, I started reading Paul Tillich's sermons, which are remarkable texts. And I had Shaking the Foundations. And I was reading that very first sermon, Shaking the Foundations. And as I was reading that, something within me shook. It was like this move. And suddenly I had a compulsion then to preach. I felt like there was something that I had to say. Something was emerging uh, within me from out of the depths. And, and then I discovered in that moment, well, maybe this is how a minister comes up with words week after week, after week, after week. And so I started to sense that there are words that are mine and words that are not mine words that belong to me and words that don't belong to me. Words that emerge from someplace deep and there, you know, I sensed that I had something to say around that. Uh, and, and so as a result of that, I started thinking about going to seminary and started thinking about being a pastor at that point. So the focus in those years was upon theology, serving, serving the church. But Jung was never very, very far away from me, even in, even in that um, period. Like I said, Jung was a kind of constant companion. I was at Yale Divinity School for a while, just for one term, and then I, then I transferred to Princeton Theological Seminary in, in New Jersey which is a Presbyterian seminary. And I went there primarily because I, I really wanted to work with one person in particular, and that was James, James Loder. And James Loder was professor of practical theology. Now, Jim Loder did his PhD at Harvard on the, on the phenomenology of Freud and Kierkegaard. And he also worked in the psychiatric clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital while he was working on his, his, his PhD. So my time with Loder, Loder was the first person to show me how 
theology, Christian faith and practice could be brought into conversation with theology and psychology, psychoanalysis and analysis, how they could all be brought to together. It was around that time that I had what I would call today uh, a big dream or an archetypal uh, dream. And I, and I had no idea what to do with this dream. So I brought it to Loader and we sat with it. He listened to me. He had the wisdom out of his background to have some indication of what that dream might be saying to me. And it was really a life-changing uh, dream that continues to reverberate in my own day and age. Uh, and that was more than 35 years ago. So, so Loder was the first to help me to see the value of dreams, to pay attention to dreams, to listen to dreams, to work with dreams, to listen to what the psyche might be saying in the dream, maybe even to listen to what the divine might be saying in and through a dream. And that approach really changed my, changed my life. And I've been you know, paying attention to, to dreams mm. ever, ever since that. And so that, that, you know, kept me close to the Jungian world. Over the last seven or eight years in particular, I've had significant dreams that pointed me in the direction of moving toward, toward training, particularly training in, in Zurich. So I just started paying close attention you know, to these things. And then about five years ago, I, after a particular dream, I decided to, to, to apply for the, for the training. And that's what I've been doing. You know, part part time while working in a parish, you know, full time, you know, in a, in a pretty good sized parish. I would like us to spend some time today talking about a, a very important exchange uh, between the theology and psychology. That's the correspondence between Jung and Adolf Keller. Adolf Keller, the Protestant theologian and uh, pastoral psychologist. I know that you have spent time with this correspondence and I know that you have been to the archives in Zurich. I was wondering if you could starting by introducing us to to Adolf Keller and what you found yourself illuminating in the relationship between him and and Sigi Jung. I was very excited about the arrival of you know, the, the Jung Keller correspondence. Um, I mean, Adolf Keller was a fascinating human being. And I have to say, maybe I'm projecting a lot onto him, but I really stand in awe of, of him as a, as a person, as a pastor, as a theologian, as a, as a, as a human being. He was a remarkable soul uh, with an indomitable uh, spirit. Uh, and and drive a little bit of a historical background. He was born in 1872, and he studied theology at the University of Basel. And his interest in the human psyche, in particular, developed while he was a, a theology student during the two semesters that he spent in Berlin in 1894 and 95. And there, he discovered that personal piety needs to be brought into conversation with social engagement and that religion should be a, a practical concern an individual concern but it needs to be a practical concern to the human spirit in such that greater value is placed upon uh, uh human experience the value of human experience of being attentive to human uh experience when he finished his theological studies, he focused on pastoral work. He was a pastor of the German Protestant church in Cairo. And while he was serving in Cairo, he spent the night alone on Mount Sinai. And there he had a profound religious experience that shaped the rest of his uh, life. He was a leader in the Swiss reform church and in the German reform and in German reform circles. He was, we might say, an interstitial person. He was, a, he was a person who was always making connections and building bridges. He socialized regularly with psychiatrists. He was very good friends with Robert Binswanger at the Bellevue Sanatorium, you know, one of the finest private psychiatric clinics in Germany. There's like this circle of 
of psychologists with religious sensibilities, religious people with psychological sensibilities were all engaged in conversations and, and sharing of, of ideas. In 1904, Keller became minister of the German Reformed Church in Geneva. Now, for a time, Keller's pastoral assistant was the young pastor, Karl Barth, who then went on to become one of the great theologians of the 20th century, and probably one of the great theologians of the church who later was known for his dialectical theology. He was a Protestant of Flournoy and others saw the value of psychology for pastoral care, for pastoral psychology. They saw very early on that psychology had something to offer, the, the work of parish, parish ministry. And then from there, from Geneva, Keller went on to St. Peter's Church in Zurich, at the time the largest Reformed church in, in Switzerland. And then it was within that context that Jung and Keller, their friendship really started to solidify. After the First World War, Keller was instrumental in organizing relief work for suffering congregations throughout Europe. So he put an enormous amount of energy into that work. So he's caring for his congregation. And he's also caring for countless other congregations throughout Europe devastated by the, by the war. He saw the value of ecumenical work of denominations, Protestant denominations in particular, get, you know, working together for a common end or for the welfare of humankind. So the ecumenical movement emerges in the early part of the 20th century after the First World War. And he was, he was directly involved in that work in what would later become the World Council of, of Churches. So he saw the value of ecumenical work and church unity. And even here, you can see Keller as a bridge builder. He's making those connections. He is trying to maintain, he's trying to build bridges, maintain bridges, but he himself within his own being, he is a bridge. And then when he found himself within Zurich, within, within those circles, it was quite natural for Keller to start making bridges with the psychoanalytic community in Zurich at, at the time. Keller was directly involved in the psychoanalytic community, working with, with psychoanalysts, working with um, psychologists. And he was not alone. In this growing field of psychology, you see pastors and uh, psychologists working together, crossing boundaries, trying to find places where there's, 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 you know, mutuality. And, you know, Keller became a very good friend of Jung. Keller baptized several of Jung's children. Keller's wife, Tina, was in analysis with Jung and then later came, became the first woman analyst to work in Geneva. And Keller was often at Jung's home in, in, in Kristallik. So you can just imagine the conversations that took place around the, the, the dinner uh, table, table there. And then when Jung split with Freud, Keller supported Jung and was there by his, his side. He was a member of the Psychoanalytic Society, which was a forerunner of the Psychology Club. So he's a very important person his, historically, not only for, for uh, theological developments, but also the history of pastoral theology or practical theology, which, which is also a new field that, that emerges in the 1930s and the 1940s, but also a very important person for the history of analytical psychology, because he had a huge impact upon Jung and Jung's own ideas. Bollingen, 12th of February, 1951. Dear friend. Many thanks for your kind letter. Does me good to hear that you accept my humanity. I only hope that this is not too difficult for you. I do not wish to reproach you. But I don't like standing there as the only sinner, conscious of having to accept the indulgent gift of having my sins forgiven. I would be very happy to converse with you on any subject close to your heart, 
they have little opportunity to talk with other men. They have had some friends, uh, but they have died. To speak with others, that is, to speak in such a way that one gets something from it. It's therefore very difficult because they have no relation to my spiritual world and thus feel overextended. In contrast, an inconsequential conversation seems to me to be too wearisome and makes me as tired as if I had undertaken the most uh, laborious work. People make it too difficult for me, for I cannot and will not torture myself with utility. I'm always available for something substantial. I hope we will soon have the opportunity for a conversation. With best wishes, yours, Carl. When you look at that exchange and what's been uh, conserved in those lectures, what are the key questions that this uh, correspondence circulates around? And are there questions there that, that you explore that you feel are highly relevant also for, for our time? Can, can you share something of what touches you? What, what touches me is the way in these letters that Keller remains consistent. He's always the bridge. He's, he's looking for connections. He's trying to find correlation. He's trying to find relationship between developments within theology and also developments within psychology or as psychology develops in nearly part of the 20th century. I'm struck by the fact that analytical psychology develops late 19-teens into 1920, around the same time that dialectical theology is emerging. And dialectical theology is the theology that's associated with Karl Barth, Bultmann, and Bruner, and, and, and others. But Barth is sort of like the, he's the one at this time who's kind of advocating for a dialectical kind of theology. So dialectical theology is emerging, particularly after Barth's commentary on Romans in 1919. All of this, all this theological fervor is happening at the same time, analytical psychology is emerging in, in, in Zurich. And it's Keller sees in some, in some aspects of dialectical theology opportunities here for some kind of connection possibly with analytical uh, psychology and you know Keller struggles with this he sees opportunities for for conversation and for dialogue and yet he also has some reservations he he sees the tension he's not trying to blend them together he's trying to hold them together maybe in a kind of creative tension to hopefully wait for something new to emerge as, as a result of, of that. You can see Keller's projections on, on Toulon. I mean, in some ways they are, this is not a relationship among equals. At the same time, Keller holds his own. He doesn't yield easily to Jung. He holds, he, he takes Jung to task where he is maybe theologically going off you know, detour a, a, a little bit. He raises important questions to you. I think in striking that uh, there's tensions in the relationship. They, they had a strong relationship early, early on. There was a time when there was a, a, a gap in their relationship and then later in their lives, they come back together. And that's where the correspondence really focuses more on that time when they're coming back together. As the letters show, um, Jung trusts Keller. Jung gives Keller early versions of Answer to Job. He's carrying around these documents in his person. On you know, Keller, he confides in Keller. And Keller then also pushes back on and raises critical questions about what he's 
what Jung is trying to do. Respecting and understanding what's, what's happening or what Jung is trying to say in answer to Joe, but also responding with a kind of theological response, theological critique. So, so kind of, you know, helping it, maybe this is too strong, but kind of helping and guide Jung a little bit as he himself digests and processes what he, what he's trying to say and do in, in answer to, to Joe. They are sort of embodying that, um, that relationship of psychology and theology as, as it were in the relationship itself, in the flow, in the, in the dialogue, in the dialectic, one to the other, one being open to the other in allowing oneself to be informed by, by the other maintaining one's own individuality, particularity in, in each, but then connecting and relating one to the other and being touched by, by, by the other. So that it's almost like a dance you can, you can see in the, in the correspondence, which is what I, I, I find fascinating. Kusnacht, 4th of March, 1951. Dear friend, Please forgive me if I trouble you with another unbidden letter. Although I constantly have little time for personal activities, I have taken or stolen the necessary time to face my friends. I have no experience of redemption, whereas I have never yet encountered and redeemed. I must almost conclude from your remark that you consider redemption the goal of my psychotherapy, but that would be a not insignificant error. The truth would be rather the opposite. It would be hard to be more convinced of the significance of Christianity than I am. Only one can be convinced of it in a different way. With best wishes, Jürgen Jung. Zurich, 14th March, 1951. Dear friend, it moves me deeply that you took the trouble to write me such a long, detailed, and most profoundly incisive letter. You experience a growing distance in our correspondence. I experience it as a paradoxical expression of an intimacy. This is possible only when we are able not only to agree to disagree about particulars, but we together each from his own location, tried to discover the other's position within the greater whole, for example, in the current of contemporary cultural awareness. This is my constant position in relation to you. We are both approaching the end of our lives. In the last two months, I have lost eight friends and would be loath to lose another one, not through the final unavoidable loss, but principally due to misunderstandings and misinterpretation. Incidentally, I have never confused psychotherapy with redemption, and in using the word, I was alluding more to Nietzsche's comment, thus rather to an impression than a theory. It would never occur to me to trivialize your immense knowledge and your experience. You seem to want to renounce my friendship. This is quite unilateral, and I am unwilling to take part in it. I am distressed that you think I am capable of arrogance in a thoroughly, constructively critical debate in which I show no condescension, but am exercising my freedom and clearly showing you the honor and esteem that I offer to an initiator and psycho-pioneer who initiated me into mysteries such that I will remain bound to him my whole life, whatever befalls. Even when his human willingness and intimacy do not come my way. Yet I must retract this word right away, since your long letter proves quite the opposite. You are hurt, and therefore bitter. I had no intention of hurting you, or even of lecturing you. We don't have enough time left for that now. And even if you were right, I would assume that your greatness and your knowledge of the interdialectic of the opposites would enable you to meet even an errant or inadequate adept with understanding and insight in such a quaternity full humanity. Much remains unsaid. I cannot ask such an extensive correspondence from you. 
whether my reply will make possible a desired meeting, I must leave to you. I am now, as always, in undiminished respect and friendship. Yours, Adolf Keller. Is there, uh, in your mind, change that one can see then in uh, either of the two? I mean, either in the Jung or his uh, psychology that he developed, was he also open to change and changed out of uh, the correspondence like this? Do you see that there was results of this uh, fascinating and, and yeah, also I find very moving exchange between these two? Yeah, I think there was maybe a change, maybe a, a different way way of saying it is Keller Keller was receptive to what Jung had to give him. And he took it in and metabolized it, digested it. Keller was not trying to be Jung, but he was he was taking in what Jung could offer and receive. He wasn't open to everything that Jung tried to offer, right? But he took in something, he allowed himself to be touched. And in that movement, Keller was changed. And that and it allowed him to it, it kind of freed him, as you see in the in the letters, what I'm I'm really struck by and I was surprised and shocked by to learn here that Keller gave lectures on dialectical theology at the psychology club. That's just extraordinary, I, I think. And Jung was in attendance at these lectures. Jung wanted to know more about dialectical theology. In the end, I don't think he fully fathomed what dialectical theology was about and, it, and is about in the issues with, with Barth. And he was not afraid to criticize Barth. But you see, there's this, there's this questioning, there's this openness, there's a kind of curiosity on Jung's part that he could take, that he could take that in. I don't think Jung was a, a great theologian. He was interested in theology. I think Keller helped him maybe be a better theological thinker and perhaps was open, open, open to that. It's very, very touching toward the end of the correspondence where you see this, the sensitivity that he really valued and appreciated his friendship with, with Keller. You know, he signed the last letter, he, he signs it, your, your old loyal friend. And there's something very tender and beautiful, I think, about that. So Jung allowed himself to be touched by, by that relationship. He allowed himself to be touched on a, on a personal level, but if I hear you right, it didn't make him change his theory or his theorizing much. And when you say that, that there's lack maybe in regards to Jung as a theologian, what is it that, that makes Jung not maybe the greatest theologian? Formally, he doesn't have theological training, but he read, he read theologians, you know, he had access to theology, but sometimes I think Jung, Jung would, would pull from a theological idea here and then another theological idea from, from there and kind of pull them together without maybe spending enough time understanding or maybe dwelling with the theological integrity, the particularity of a theological idea over here, as it were, and then seeing how it connects with, with another theological idea. Now, Ann Mulanoff often says that, that no, Jung, Jung, he pulls theological ideas from here and here and here for what serves his project, serves his purpose. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then don't equate what he is then producing as theology. So you can pull theological ideas, he can quote scripture, he can quote the uh, theologian, but these things are often done in service to, to how they're kind of metabolized or digested, integrated within him. That then yields some kind of theological, psychological statement mm. on Jung's, Jung's part. But is there a correlation to what was the intent of that original theological point or writer or text? That makes me also wonder about what is it then that Jung was serving? You know, what is this project he was? pulling things too. I mean, there's many 
speculations and interpretations and, and different understandings of what analytical psychology is. I don't know if there's any thoughts you have on that. What was he pulling these things for? Developing a psychological theory or more building a new temple? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a great question too. Ultimately, one would say, uh, based upon the collected works and, and other texts in service to individuation, like the, the process of, of individuation, what's involved in individuation, how one helps another to go in and through that process of individuation. Keller says in his, in his lecture at the psychology club that uh, in individuation though it needs to be in service to something larger than itself. And that other is fellowship or, or connection to a kind of a higher, higher connection as it were. I think personally, when I read you as a pastor, as a theologian, as someone who's trying to, trying to hold all this stuff within me personally, what I sense in Jung, and, you know, and maybe it's my own projections or the things I, I hunger for, but what I, what I sense in Jung and I see it in the, in the letters is, you know, he, I think he is, he wants, or he hopes for individuals to have their own life-giving religious experiences that connect them with, with something larger than the ego or larger than oneself living experience, call it religious if one wants to, but, but an experience that allows that, that connects one to the transcendent, to the divine, to the holy. something other, holy other, as Bart might say, and to allow the livingness of a living experience with God to touch and enable and enliven the living psyche. To tap into, into, into what the New Testament calls Zoe, life, like full life, abundant life, and allow that life to take on life within, within the, within the individual. Perhaps that's projecting too much onto Jung, but I think there's a case to be said that that's in some ways what he's trying to do. And I often wonder how that connects to his own experience growing up as a reformed, the, the son of a reformed pastor and within reformed theology in general. Even to this day, within reformed Calvinist circles, there is considerable suspicion around religious experience, paying attention to religious experience, trusting religious experience, trusting one's own in interior, inner experience, trusting one's feelings, listening to one's gut, all of, all of those, those things. In some religious circles, there's the emphasis upon the ideas of Christianity the beliefs of Christianity, just kind of accepting the beliefs of the, of the tradition and kind of living out the, the morals of the church as it were, or the morals of the teachings of the church, imitating Christ. There's a place for all of that. But I think Jung saw perhaps in his own father and perhaps maybe the weakness within the reformed tradition that these ideas are not necessarily bringing one to life. They're not allowing something new to be released uh, within one. Some of the numinous experiences that Jung had, the religious experiences that he had, maybe gave greater authority to one's own personal experience and trusting that experience, even if it might be irrational and bizarre and going against the grain or, or going against the, the, the collective or going against what the church might say. But he's trusting that. And I think that too is a, is a place where Keller and Jung connect because again, Keller had his own religious experience on Mount Sinai. 
there are loads of people in, in churches and outside of churches that have had religious experiences, have been truly touched, and they don't have to be, you know, Paul Damascus Road experiences of a blinding light. They could be very subtle, moving experiences that change your life forever. But what do you do with those experiences? How do you then process them, integrate them, talk with someone about them, kind of dwell within those experiences, allow those experiences to touch you, what might be trying to come to life through, through you, all of those dimensions. That is often missing within, you know, religious circles. They're there. I mean, those opportunities are there, but you have to go looking for them. You only made space for those kinds of experiences. And for me, that's a very, very valuable model, or that's a very, very important. Just knowing that that's possible. You don't have to agree with everything that Jung says, but to allow that he, he creates that container or an analytical experience can create that kind of container. As you're talking, I, I, I'm thinking about the numinosity and these valuable religious experiences that you share these people have had and how analytical psychology can offer language and a vessel for that. I absolutely agree. I think that's the beauty of this work, you know, the beauty of analysis, the beauty of this tradition. But you must also as a pastor come in uh, contact with people who experience the numinous in, 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 in the most... Uh, tragic of ways uh, in losing a family member in sickness when when life in all its uh, power overwhelms us and throws our life around there is that side of the numinous of the life experience that is also terrible and and we also have saints and others who have had had their conversion experiences by facing for example suffering of the world or facing horrible catastrophes in their life. I'm trying just to portray this other side of the numinous that we all, all have to meet. We don't have to be mystics. We all have to meet to the end of things. The tragedy also that's a part of this life. This also ties into Gigerish critique of Jung as maybe someone who was, uh, as he would say, a, a, a psychology of glory versus he says a psychology of the cross. Yeah. Taking that from Luther, yeah? Right. And right. there is something about the, 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 the God in the union often is the glorious. I, I think that sometimes we overuse the word numinous and we are, I mean, the numinous can be you know, another word there, sort of a synonym for a spiritual experience. But I think contained in, in the numinous is, is an experience of, to, to cite Rodolfo, right? It's the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's this mystery that both fascinates and overwhelms. It's, it's, it is, you can see why Bart was attracted to, to Otto, this kind of sense of, of, of other. I mean, the, the numinous, somewhere along the line, I read that, that the word numen has a, you know, a Sanskrit root, which means to bow, to be, to, to, to kneel, to, to, to bow something that is other that, that destabilizes me that disorients me, it might even scare and terrorize me. It is something that it cannot easily be processed or integrated into one's own experience. It's truly something uncanny and other. There's a place for the numinous that is truly an experience of glory, right? But there's also the experience of the numinous where one is brought to that place of, of suffering where in the face of suffering, 
my world, my reality, my understanding of myself and other and God, et cetera, are all disoriented, are descent, are we're knocked off center. And in the, in the presence of those types of experiences, there's a sense of silence and awe and maybe humility before that, before that mystery. So I think there's a, there's a place, place for, for both. I guess I see what Gigerich is saying, but I don't necessarily see Jung as focusing primarily on a, a psychology of glory. There's, there's too much suffering within Jung's life and what he sees within human suffering to, to make such a strong claim. Again, you know, him relating to the dream with the one millimeter and, and, and Jung not being able to touch the forehead towards the ground, Jung imitating his father and then being taken to the highest presence, which is not this beautiful palace, but it's a, it's another space where he sees this betrayed, dying godman Uriah. As I understand Gigerich critique, there's something in Jung's interpretation of that dream. There's a critique of that, and I've also heard others delivering a sort of similar critique that there's something that Jung has difficulties maybe in facing there, a God that is a, a dying human or, or human, a dying man. And of course, it's hard not to associate to Jesus on the cross and, 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 you know, on, on, on facing the cross. I think it's one thing to intellectually say that one can't face the, the, the dying God, man, what one can approach that theologically as a, as a theological idea, participating in that is something very different. Sure. It's difficult. And maybe it should be difficult, or maybe we should not be too eager to identify too closely with that dying God image. So that maybe, yes, it's, it's yes. And maybe no, it's to be, to, to be drawn toward that image but maybe not over identify too much with that, with that image. Maybe this connects to the, the imitatio Christi thing that, you know, what theme is, you know, there's, there's a place for, for imitation, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I see and have experienced a lot of, of people over, over the years who uh, we're, we're trying to imitate Christ and become martyrs when, when that's a decision where their ego and then what they're really being called to do where imitation, there's, there's a lot of over identification with that image. I hear in certain circles that, you know, I just need to die, die, die to myself all the time so that I can be nothing and Christ can be everything in me. I hear that language in many, in many churches. And I understand that. And there's good theological reasons for those, for a statement like, like that. I'm also kind of cautious and concerned because what does that say psychologically for, for the individual where, where one is completely losing a sense of self or one's own identity, individuality to live, to then identify too much in that of, of Christ identify too much in, into that, into that pattern. And really lose oneself in, into that image and not in a, not in a good way. It becomes an escape. It becomes a refusal to enter one's own life. So you, I'm not sure that resonates or that, that makes, make, makes sense here. Well, I think it's a very interesting perspective and 
And it, it sounds also like the, the, the union analyst in you talking. It makes sense to me on many levels, but I wonder also, did you feel that there would have been a risk for you to identify too much with Christ? Because I feel like that he's very far from uh, identification. There's a lot in Jung about the individual's suffering, and there's a lot of suffering in Jung's life, but there's not so much around the suffering of the world or of the poverty in the world. It's not so much about the, the poor, let's say. There's not very often that's raised. And, and that's, you know, that can be fine. But I do think it's important, at least for me, in my own wrestle with Christianity, it's been very important to see how far can I go with Jung and, and where do we need to depart? Long before I knew that Jung wrote on the Imitatio Christi, I had problems with the imitation of Christ. Just that concept of being like Christ, okay, following Christ. And, you know, as a Christian in my own journey, that's not an image that I gravitate toward. And I, and I, I, and this might sound heretical, the church police might come after me, but I don't think we're called to imitate Christ, but to follow. And there, there's a world of difference between the two. They, there's a, they, they connect, but they're not exactly the same. And I think what kind of pushed me in this, in this way, you know, personally, in my own analysis, in my own journey, but in my experience as a pastor, I have seen countless people have told me I have seen that the, this, this prospect or ideal, ideal of imitating Christ, of being like him in every way, of denying myself and, and kind of taking up my, my cross. I have, there are countless people I, that I know, which I've seen that that has become a recipe for spiritual and psychological disaster. Years ago, I read that you know, Kierkegaard says comparison kills. And I think that's worth kind of, there's a place for comparison, right? Like comparison can also kill. To compare oneself with Christ can set one up for failure, right? It sets one up for you know, enormous disappointment for how can one ever fully realize that goal, that projection, that perfection. And then people have said, well, I can't live up to that. I can't be like him. I can't be a Christian if it means all these things. Then that leads to enormous amounts of self-recrimination, self-loathing, judgment, internal punishment, never ever measuring up and fell, failing, failing. And I, I just, this is my experience as a pastor. I just feel that that's the terrible burden to bear. And then I have to say, well, where, where then is the joy? Where is the good news in all of this? Where is the gospel in, in all of this? And, you know, I know callous people who have left the church or Christianity altogether because they were taught that following Christ was about perfectly living up to this particular ethical, moral standard. And because they could not reach it, because they could not, do, because they did not do it, they, they left the church. They left the faith. You know, they left it because they felt that it was destroying one's soul to stay in that environment where there was an enormous amount of judgment for living up, failing to live up to a particular ideal. So I, I think, you know, a turning point for me was years ago, reading, you know, there's a, a, a verse in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly father is perfect. And that verse never really quite sat with, with me. And that comes out of my own perfectionism kind of complexes that I, owe, that I personally deal with. But 
be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. That word perfect and perfection is such a loaded word for us today. And that it's not the best translation of that text. It's not incorrect, but it carries a completely different valence in Matthew's gospel. And it, ha it really has to do more with wholeness, complete, completeness, and integrity. Or another way of putting it, of living out one's end or purpose, one's telos. The same way God lives out and is faithful to God's own end or purpose or telos. So live out your own, live out your telos appropriately. And that's a very, very different understanding and is far more freeing and liberating, I, I think. And I wanted to, to say that this is, you know, this is, I think, really, this is a really important bridge in theology and psychology here because, you know, to be a, if one is a disciple or a student of Jesus, then that means following after. And one learn, in other words, learning the way or the style of the teacher, following the teacher. <laughs> I like that. This is particularly important that for in, in John's gospel, for example, it's about relationship. It's relation, it's relational. And that relationship is ongoing. It's about a living relationship with Christ in the spirit, in the life of community in the, in that a Christian then is called, called to. So that what I, what I found myself moving toward is that instead of a imitatio Christi, that the Christian life is, is about participatio Christi participation, participating now within the life of Christ, increasingly conscious then of what God in Christ is bringing to light in us as we discover what, what is trying to come alive or what is trying to be born within the individuality of the person and in the, of, the, of the soul. This is directly related to developments in Pauline scholarship over the last 10 years, where this notion of participation is incredibly important within Paul's theology. Where, and when Paul himself says, it's I, yet not I, but Christ, that formula, I, yet not I, but Christ, holding, holding that tension always and not absorb, not kind of losing the I in Christ. I, yet not I, but Christ. And there are a couple of places where Jung himself makes that point. He pulls from that, from that understanding of Paul. And, uh, you know, so that, that, that's how I, you know, respond to the, to the, there's a place for the imitatio, but, but it's where, where is the, where is the participatio? Where is that, that living experience coming alive within us? I very much agree with you. I, I'm certain there are people who use uh, Christ as an sort of ambitious spiritual ideal, and that can be very destructive if we haven't also learned to differentiate this ideal from our parents and our childhoods and what we carry around from our yeah, personal backgrounds. But, but there is also something, you know, take someone like Ittehillism. I mean, life is often interrupted. But I mean, there's also the other side of it. Also, wholeness can be a very dangerous ideal, I believe, if you start to look for wholeness. Because as I see the image of Christ, it's, uh, it very much speaks to me, participation. But we are already participating in that life. And seeing him on the cross, to see him on the cross, this is the highest presence. And I think this connects to Keller and, and that lecture that you were referring to that he delivered at the the psychological club back in 19, was it 18 or 16? 1918, exactly. The gospel and Christianity. And, and you quoted a, a part of that earlier when you said that the ultimate goal is, is higher fellowship. Mm -hmm. And, and I, just wanna, I just wanna read that passage. The natural man is in bondage. 
when we speak in analytical psychology of complexes, these are the same bondages expressed by the gospel as the dominion of the flesh, of the law of sin. Liberation from this is accomplished for the Christian, as it were, in an analogy of the life of Jesus. Through repentance, through sacrifice, through taking up the cross and in the resurrection to a new life, the same dying and becoming is achieved that made the life impetus of Jesus into the illuminating pattern it is. Every outworking of this life emanating from Jesus urges man to save his soul. For what is a man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But the discovery of the infinite value of the soul is not the end. The value of the completely liberated individual is complemented by the value of highest fellowship, finding its universal expression in the idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus leads man to both, to individuation, and at the same time, to the highest fellowship. I, I, I find that absolutely beautiful. And I, I resonate very, very deeply with, with that. And I think of the liberation from those things that, that, that bind us, that hold us, that, that weigh us down, that, that kind of um, hinders uh, the, the new life, you know, to emerge or a new life or new beginnings to emerge with, within us. You know, I think that that is in, in many ways the, the, the Christian life. And I think, you know, when I think of wholeness, I think of wholeness as including all of that, taking in wholeness is also includes the suffering, taking all of that in, integrating, not rejecting the, the dominion of the flesh, which doesn't mean sexuality. It means that, that within that, which is within us, which is against life or against, against God. And it's the liberation of those things that, so that a greater integration or connection can, can take place. Transformation can take place, or maybe a better you know, transformation is a pretty good theological religious word, but maybe a better theological word is reconciliation. And when I read Eddie Hillison, that's what I hear is that she, she, she's not afraid to see all of reality and all of his horror and all of his brutality. But there's something about the way in which she then holds all that within herself and she, because she trusts in something underneath it all. She trusts that something is there underneath it all that kind of holds it, that holds us. And so there's a, there's a, you know, you know that last line there, you know, Jesus leads humanity to both individuation and at the same time to the higher is fellowship. I think that individuation is, should be in service to community. It should lead to one's living within the larger, from a, from a theological perspective, that it is about koinonia, right? It's about community. It's about me bringing my individuality, not my individualism, but the uniqueness of myself into the community. And in some ways, the community helps me individuate. And, you know, that, that image of the kingdom of God that Keller's talking about here, countless times Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as a feast. We are gathered around a table. We are living in community. There's a kind of a dance of that community. There's a kind of the power of the relationship within the community where individuals are bringing their individuality into the community, but you're not losing your individuality in the community. And that's a, that's a risk. Sometimes religious communities do not foster one's own development. They will hinder one's own individuation. 
one's own personal growth. Sometimes religious communities say you need to deny your personal experience. You need to deny what you're feeling right now. You need to set those feelings, those experiences aside. But what Keller's talking about here is an individuation, a person who is aware of how those complexes, as it were, are at work within oneself, having a new relationship vis-a-vis -vis those complexes, and then bringing one's own fuller humanity into, into the relationship in the community. Kustler, a few days before 21st of March, 1951. I'm sincerely grateful to you for your comprehensive reply. You really must not assume that I do not value your friendship. It's precisely because I do value it that I try to explain to you in broad detail what was working me. Your letter helps me to understand where the difficulties in transmission lay. I oppose the backwardness of Protestantism. I don't want it give up its leading position. I don't want to go back to the unconscious form of Catholic concretism. Therefore, I also battle against Protestant concretism, historicity, and the abstractness of the Protestant message, which today can only be understood as a historical remnant. If Christ means anything to me, it is only as a symbol. As a historical figure, he might just as well be called uh, Pythagoras, Lao Tse, Zarathustra, and so on. I find a historical Jesus completely unedifying, simply interesting because controversial. I say this so that you will know where I stand. Once again, many thanks for your considerate letter, full of goodwill. Your call.